you had this fantastic olfactory orgasm of human sweat, peat smoke, green malt and whiskey. Welcome to my podcast, Spirit and Spice. I'm Gilly Bashan, a writer and broadcaster with a passion for food. Not just the food on my plate, but the people and the stories behind it. Well, it's a lovely windy day on the Sound of Isla, and I'm chatting to Billy Stitchell, who was perhaps the longest serving manager of Galila Distillery. Is that right? It possibly was. I worked here for 40 years. Well, just short of 40 years, I mean, 20 years of that I was in management. Did you actually join from school? No, I might uh, not look you're, that you're, old. You're a, you're a young looking chap. So. <laughs> no, I did four years in the forestry first on the, one of the local estates when I, I left school when I was 16 and came to Kalila when I was 19, following on that family tradition more or less. But you, so you're Isla born and bred? Yeah, I was actually born in Bunahaven, which is just up the, the coast here. But my father, both grandfathers, great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather worked at Kalila. So that's the wonderful thing about whiskey in Scotland, isn't it? There are so many people that can trace back their relatives. And I can too, but in a slightly different way, um, because Kalila is one of those whiskies that's been in my house, you know, all of my life, because my father's grandfather was also involved in Kalila, not making the whiskey, he probably just drank it, um, <laughs> because he was chairman of Bulachleid. Does the name Bulachleid mean anything to you? Yes, Bulachleid was something that we were associated with right from the start when I joined Kalila in 1974 and we had to stencil Bullock Laid and every casket was filled so the, the name is stuck in the head. Bullock Laid owned the licence for Kalila to distill spirit. They were whiskey traders. Yes, yeah. uh, to be legal you had to have a licence and Bullock Laid held the licence. All the spirit goes out by tanker now but up until 1990 I think it was we're actually stenciling the name on the cask. From a customs point of view, every cask had to be stenciled and numbered before it went into the warehouse or into the filling store to get filled. It had to legally have that on it. So where's the warehouse for Kalila? The warehouse is behind you here. It doesn't hold a lot of casks. I think it's, it was about 8,000 casks in it at one point. But because of the volume Kalila produced, all the warehousing was done in the central belt. We were producing the sort of PT consistent spirit for Johnny Walker. Kalila is a big producer for about 17 years we produce three and a half million litres a year and we upgraded it in 2011 to six and a half million litres a year so it's huge production. So what does Kalila mean? Uh, Kalila means that the stretch of water between Isla and Jura. Kol is the stretch of water and Isla is Isla so it's Kalila. And it's a really beautiful location in fact We've been to several distilleries on Isla and all of them are beautiful locations because they're all right on the water. But this one is particularly stunning because you're looking straight onto the paps of Jura. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get tired of seeing that? No, because it's always changing. You can either see them or you can't see them. The, the, the saying is, if you can see the paps, it's going to rain. If you can't see them, it is raining. <laughs> well, yesterday we had the most gorgeous day on Isla. Was that just like the one day of the year? That's broke my arm. No, it was, <laughs> we do get good days. Usually later on in the season, it seems to have changed. Because obviously, in years gone past, uh, like Kalila did their own malting. So in the summertime, the distillery was shut purely because they needed the manpower to actually cut the peats that they needed for doing their kilning for the for the day heavy peated malt. So there was breaks and that involved the whole whole village, like the women would be working at the peat. There was a lot of activity. The whole village was built around the distillery. So there is a village called Kulila? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then funnily enough, people that we've talked to on Isla, who are Isla born and bred, they've told us that they actually don't drink whiskey. That's true. I don't actually drink whiskey. I love nosing it, I love doing all the presentations, all that sort of stuff, and I'll, I don't actually drink it. There's only one Kalila I would, as Kalila, 18-year-old, which I feel is uh, slippers on the big fire. Well, now that is a strange thing to hear when there's actually a whiskey named after you and your family. <laughs> yeah, that, that was an honour that I didn't know anything about. Uh, it was probably about two or three months before I retired. The head of brands at the time phoned me up one day and said, do you know anything about a bottle of Kalila with your name on it? 
No. I haven't heard. Oh, so nobody's asked you? No. Oh. It's been bottled at the moment. Whoever had started it off has now left the company. But it just coincided. It was just a few months before I retired. So it was a brilliant send-off. <laughs> and it's called Stitchell Reserve. Stitchell Reserve, yeah. The tasting notes sound amazing. Mm -hmm. Cocoa and spice and there is oil in there. And That particular one is an unpeated one. Obviously, Kalila was designed for peated spirit. And it's pretty easy to do peated spirit. But to produce an unpeated spirit is extremely difficult. But we got it down to a fine art. We could be producing peated on a Friday, and by Tuesday, we could be producing totally clean unpeated spirit by doing different tweaks in the process. So, if you were a collector of whiskey, is Stitchell Reserve one that one should invest in? Well, there wasn't that many bottles produced, and I think I've got six cases in the house. So. Oh, so you could be a millionaire. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> And I didn't get a discount on it either. <laughs> so you don't drink whiskey, um, although you've been involved in it all your life um, as an island man. Are you also one of these people that lives next to beautiful mountains like the ones across the bay there on Jura and you don't climb mountains? Uh, that's not true of me. I've got a camera and I do a lot of walking. I probably do about 100 miles a month. I've been up the Paps of Jura with Alan Winchester, David Broom, Donald Rennick and Mickey Heads. Gosh, that's a real catalogue of whiskey people there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we, we climbed up that we shouldn't have gone because it was a very wild day. It was just a bit like this, but probably a, a bit more severe. And we climbed up and we were on our hands and knees at the top. It was that wild and the rain was hitting us like bullets. So we went into one, one of the wee dens up on the top and had had a drama. I can't remember whether I had one or not. I don't think I did. I may, well, maybe I did for the cold. <laughs> <laughs> and on the way back down on the on the far side, there's a lot of rubble and rocks and all that. So as they were climbing down, a load of rock came down and rolled over my leg. But my leg was that cold. I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> and then we went back round the other side to get down. And obviously the rucksack on my back. And there was a ridge. And I got blown off the ridge and did a cartwheel down the bank, I think. I look a right clown. Now I look to the left and there's somebody rolling down that side. Look to the right and there's somebody else rolling down that side. So it was quite funny in a way. We got back down and then we found out that the, the Judah ferry wasn't running because it was too wild and the main ferry wasn't running because the wind speed at Brochladi, the, the sensor there, was 85 mile an hour that day. Oh my goodness. That was at sea level. Up there it would have been a bit more. So you had to stay on Jura for the night? Well, it calmed down quite quickly. And we managed to get back about six o'clock at night. So you mentioned Alan Winchester there going up um, the Paps of Jura with him. And I know Alan, um, he's up in my neck of the woods and I do a fair amount of whiskey and food pairing with him. And he is having a fabulous time in his retirement, traveling around the world and doing lots of tastings and talks. And uh, uh, I think there's just a big smile on his face every day. So what does retirement bring for you? Uh, retirement is quite hectic. I don't know how I had time to work. Well, between walking, the grandchildren, I've got two granddaughters, which we look after quite a lot. My wife and I started fostering about 20 years ago. So I think we've now had about 12 different kids. We've got two at the moment. So things like that took up a lot of time. And then I see there's a wee boat bobbing about in the bay there. Does that belong to you? Yeah, that's mine. Yep, it's bobbing about. <laughs> Keep an eye on it. <laughs> it's good to get out in the good days and there's always plenty to see. You know, even in the sound here you get dolphins and uh, basking sharks. In odd time you get uh, orcas as well. Plenty seals. Is that why you have a boat to go out and just pa see the wildlife? Part of it. And a slightly smaller one a few years ago, and it was a brilliant experience. We were fishing down just past Portaski again. The engine was off, it was quite quiet, and we could hear this noise. Couldn't figure out what it was at first. And uh, it got louder and louder. It was a pod of dolphins coming up. Well, we lost count at 40, and they're coming up beside the boat, and lying on their side looking up at you, and you could just about touch them. And there was tiny wee ones. Oh, it was amazing. Oh, that is amazing. Very, very special. So you've got mm -hmm. your camera around your neck. I bet you have some wonderful photographs. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, Billy, it has been an absolute delight to know that Kalila was in good hands for so long. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, I'm off now to find 
stitch or reserve? Can it be found in a, in a shop? It's pretty difficult, I think. Right. So I could give you a taste today if you wanted. A taste of stitch or reserve? Really? Mm -hmm. I'm in Bruchladi today on a filthy day, weather-wise, but perfect for a dram. And Simon Coughlin, you rescued this distillery. Uh, to be fair, it wasn't just me. <laughs> it was uh, uh, my business partner and good friend Mark Rainier and uh, um, put the idea together, for sure. Um, a long time ago now, it's almost 25, almost 30 years ago, we had the idea. Um, our background was, was wine. But uh, yes, Brooklady had been sitting empty for six years when we eventually managed to buy it and reopen it. But why it. had it shut? There was a long period of sort of closures and reopenings of distilleries, overproduction, and then they realised they had too much. And But it was all driven by blends. You've got to remember that all single malt distilleries exist for the blenders as part of the recipe. And they went through peaks and troughs and they were shutting distilleries. I mean, until we reopened this one, an Ardbeg reopened a few years before. Up until that point, distilleries were shutting all over. But you mentioned at the beginning that you were from the wine trade. So what enticed you about an island off the west coast of Scotland, well known for rain and wind, and it is whiskey? We were introduced to whiskey by the Milroy brothers and also Gordon Wright, uh, who's a good friend of ours from Springbank Distillery, and really opened our eyes to, to whiskey. We weren't whiskey people at all, but actually we were tasting whiskey that, that we, we understood and there were some really interesting sort of features and characteristics about it. And you could see that it had become very industrialised and the sort of heart and soul of it had been rather stripped out and it had sort of been taken over a bit by marketing. So the more we looked at it, we thought, actually, we could take our sort of wine philosophy and really layer over a, a distillery project and that's when the journey started. But aside from the philosophy when you take on a distillery in a place like this um, you're taking on the community so that's a whole different responsibility. You've got to be yeah. thinking about the terroir, the community, people that have probably actually lost their jobs when Brewer wasn't functioning. So how did that uh, work into your, your philosophy? If I'm honest it was never sort of part of our vision. This was a business opportunity it was an entrepreneurial idea to buy an old distillery that made great liquid. Luckily, they'd never invested in it, so it had all its old original equipment from 1881. It was in a beautiful place. But I think once we started here, we realised that it was going to be difficult. There was high unemployment. It's a difficult place to live. You know, um, transport, getting on and off is difficult. You know, there was no internet here, actually, back in 2000. We were able to bring back all the people that had been laid off um, in 1994, which was the last time it had operated before we got it open and running in 2001. So we had the people here that knew how it worked, you know, under Duncan McGilvery, and obviously we were able to attract Jim across the water from Bemore, who wanted to get back to making whiskey. That's really, I think, when we realised that there was a, a, a big responsibility on us in terms of exactly the community, as you say. Because we went from having two people here to within a matter of days and weeks and a couple of years, we were up to like 25 people. When we actually sold the business in the end, in 2012, there were 55 people. We're now 100 people. So there is a huge responsibility. You managed to get the whiskey up and running, but you also went into gin. We did, differently to most distilleries. Obviously, having a white spirit that you can make today and sell tomorrow is quite useful in terms of cash flow, but that wasn't for us. The old Inverleithen distillery in Dumbarton was being shut down, everything was being sold off. And, and Jim, I think, and Duncan knew about it, and we thought, actually, there could be some interesting old spare parts in there that we'd be able to use. Remarkably, in there was a Lohman still, and, and we shipped all this equipment back to Isla on a couple of barges up the Clyde, and the Lohman still sat in a field from 2004 until 2010, when we were doing some refurbishment in the still house, one of the wash stills had to come out to have some work done, so we made a big hole in the side of the building. We thought, now's an opportunity maybe to put that Lohman still in, and maybe we'll make a different style of spirit. We thought about doing vodka, and then we thought gin was a real opportunity, particularly for, for Isla because of the natural botanicals of which Jim was aware of many of them and then we worked with the Gullivers who were two retired botanists who lived at the other end of the island and we decided to create a recipe and a style of gin so in August 2010 we did our first distillation of the botanist and we haven't changed the recipe since. 
James Donaldson, you are the forager for the botanist Jim. I am indeed. So Richard and Mavis Gulliver, as Simon mentioned, they were integral at the beginning to bringing in, delivering various botanicals from around the island, which were ultimately narrowed down to the, the 22 to give us the recipe we have today. The Gullivers headed for a final retirement in 2017 and they needed someone to come aboard and carry on their good work. Had you been involved me. in foraging and plants beforehand? Been involved in plants beforehand, yeah. I grew up on the east coast, Angus, just in a little village. was lucky enough to be of a generation you were just kicked out and left to get on with it. So always grew up with a great passion for for the outdoors, for wildlife, for plant life. And ultimately that saw me off to Edinburgh University to study biology, plant science, botany. So yeah, I had the background there. It's only relatively recently I realised it was a thing, a movement, so to speak. One of the many hashtags Aye, on indeed. social media. Yes, yes indeed. <laughs> but, so, but lucky you, because you've probably I. got a job that many people would like to have. Absolute dream job. So in your interview or your first meeting with Simon and his partner, were you sworn to secrecy about the, uh, the 20 botanicals that go into the botanist? Not in the first interview, right enough. But yeah, once, uh, once the job was offered... There's no mystery as to the botanicals we use. Some of the preparation and the, the precise recipe I What are the ones that we're allowed to know? We've everything from hawthorn blossom to bog myrtle, heather, red and white clover, there's tansy, there's mugwort, um, wild sweet thyme, Sicily. sweet sicily indeed. Um, so all picked in season from one end of the island to the other. It generally starts off at the tail end of March, whenever the gorse comes into full bloom. That's what I'm starting my picking season with. Are you getting any flavour out of the gorse flowers because they have the most wonderful aroma? Yes. That coconut aroma, which you hope is emitted. I've tried syrup with it and I don't get flavour out of it. If you've got a, a secret. So I know what you mean if you're doing your standard syrup preparations and such with the hot uh, water, sugar you do come away more with just that fresh kind of pea shoot, or Almost a green, green taste, eye. yeah. I believe the trick there is to work cold. Okay. That seems to hold more of the coconut. Simon, is that one of the things you could kill him for? <laughs> no, well, I've learned something today. I didn't know that. <laughs> you have unique whiskies, don't you? I mean, you can tell me a little bit more about those, Simon. So Brookladdy, which is the name of the distillery, our main brand, if you like, all of that is unpeated. But we also have two other things that we make here. So Port Charlotte, the brand Port Charlotte, is distilled here, which is heavily peated, which is similar to the other uh, Isla whiskies, although we make it in a different way. So it's less heavy phenolic, less of that sort of TCP medicinal note that you get with some. We go for a much sort of lighter, sort of fruitier smoke note with Port Charlotte. And then we make Octomore here as well, which is the, the world's most heavily peated whiskey, which sounds like it would be undrinkable, but again, because of the very careful way that we distill it, which is very, very slowly. And again, we don't want all that heavy phenolics in there. So although we, we say it's sort of the impossible equation, because it's normally sold as a five-year-old, it's at car strength, so it's normally over 60% alcohol, and it's got a PPM of 100 plus. So all of that says that it could be really very nasty. <laughs> and actually, it's the complete opposite. So it's a real sort of education and distillation, I would say, in very, very careful blending. And then within those three brands, you've got a range of, of, of barley that is grown on the mainland. So all of our barley is traceable to a particular farm or a site or a field. Um, and we promise only ever to use Scottish barley. And that is split approximately 60% mainland Scottish barley. And uh, 40 to 45% is grown now here on Isla. So when we reopened in 2001, there was no barley grown on Isla for distillation. In fact, there never has been. Some has been grown for feed and other things. And in fact, this year we've worked with 21 farmers growing for us such a change. which is brilliant you know and it's really interesting because they are all a little bit different you know um, mm. yes the varieties are different but actually where they're grown is different and it's fascinating tasting the new spirit from the individual locations coming through and then we also have organic that we we grow up in in mainland scotland and we use a an old variety called bear barley as well in the brooklyn range which is yeah exactly the definition of an isla single malt whiskey 
actually is that it just has to be uh, mashed, fermented and, and distilled here. And that sort of takes four or five days. Whereas we believe it should be more than that. We bottle everything here. We use either spring water for reduction. Um, we age every single barrel here on Isla. So we believe that more of those boxes are ticked in terms of what's a real Isla whiskey, the definition of. And of course, putting back into the community, which, you know, uh, which is important as well. With all this success, you turn things around. Um, you have created a wonderful set of, of whiskies and the botanist gin. And then you and your partner decide to sell the distillery. Why did that come about? So we basically were just exploring the idea to see that if at some point um, we were going to have to to sell or, or, or get the business valued, we would just see what the appetite was out there. So we were just sort of uh, floating the idea a little bit and, um, and, and then suddenly we had two or three people that um, were very keen. But one thing we were sure of, we would only ever sell it to somebody that was going to keep it as it was. You know, there are some big drinks companies, particularly whiskey businesses that could have bought it and they would have bought it for the brand but they would have probably dismantled a lot of what we'd put together. You know, because storing all our whiskey here, doing our bottling here, I mean, it's, it's expensive. But we think it's important because it employs people here. We think it's more authentic to do it that way. So literally, you know, we had an offer we sort of couldn't refuse. So Remy Contro, a high-end drinks business, based in France, uh, mainly cognac. It was great because they didn't have any Scotch whiskey. They wanted Scotch whiskey in their portfolio. Um, I'm not sure that they actually knew that we'd made the botanist when they first <laughs> came knocking on the door. So um, so we always say that they got that for, for free. And in fact, the chairman <laughs> at the time, or the chief executive, Remy Contro, always used to say, as a botanist, is a cherry on the cake. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, will you stop saying that? My role within Remy Contro now is to try and uh, look and see if we can expand the whiskey division. So in the last three years, we've bought two other small distilleries one in uh, american single malt um, the pacific northwest in seattle so yes america does make single malt whiskey um, and one in the french alps nice locations for your business meetings huh? yeah very nice locations yes james with the botanist do you manage to go to any of these places too i was at the creators conference it was on isla this year we're gearing up to get Mount Gay in Barbados to uh, host the next one from your point of view it'd be interesting to see other botanicals wouldn't oh, yes. it and how you could use them absolutely um, no myself and Adam Hannett the, the head distiller here did a botanist trip over to the states at the start of this year I mean, obviously you understand that it's made here and it goes all around the world, but to actually have the opportunity to visit some of these places to see the connection the people have and the, the passion they have for the brand, it was very, yeah. very inspiring. We have a saying here, inside the gates and outside the gates. You know, every day, obviously, we have visitors, we have all the academies, but actually the business being run here from Isla, there's so much going on. But of course, the moment everything leaves on a truck, there's this whole world out there. So are there any exciting plans? So when I was talking about what makes an authentic Isla whiskey in our eyes earlier, the one thing that we don't do here is malt our own barley, which is the missing link. And I'm delighted to say that we have plans to do that now. So we're working through the final designs and, and costings just now. So I'd like to think within maybe two and a half, three years, we'll be malting our own barley all the barley that's grown on Isla. At the moment, that all has to leave the island to be malted and brought back. Crazy, which is, which is crazy. Yeah. So we're going to be doing that, and it will allow us to keep all the small batches separate, whereas the malting facility we use on the mainland at the, at the moment, they have a minimum tonnage. So sometimes we have to put some of the farms together, whereas we'd like to keep them all separate if we could. You know, on a day like this, don't tell me that whiskey matured here is not going to be affected by this weather. It's by this kind of air that's incredibly salty. I mean, you know, literally, you lick your skin and you can taste the salt. That is important. It should be aged here. This kind of weather also gets into the story. I mean, this is perfect uh, whiskey drinking weather, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I think wind and rain and mist, yeah. they drive you to a drum. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas yesterday, it was 20 degrees. Yeah. So you did well, probably was, have a Brooklyn highball. Yeah, I can honestly say I shared a dram with the Queen. 
she didn't know I was sharing it. I was just checking the quality of it. It was a quality control issue because I like the Queen. I thought I better just make sure it's okay. Like a sort of medieval taster. Yeah, I'm a sure bit, she bit. appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> so there was an angel share and there was Jim McEwen share. <laughs> Only had an odd drama or two, but nothing too serious. Well, I think I would go for the Jim <laughs> McEwen share. And Jim McEwen, you are a legend in Twisky Circles, but you're a man from Isla. And what yeah. is an Isla man called? An Elach. An Elach. That's the Gaelic name for an island. And you are a genuine Elach. A hundred percent. I was born in the village of Beaumont, about 500 metres from the distillery, which is now a bank. And on my way to school every day, I had to go past Bowmore Distillery to go up the hill to the Bowmore School. And as I got older, I went to secondary school. There were some days I didn't go to school at all, because on a Monday and Wednesday, they'd be taking the malt from the malting floors up to the kilns for drying. It was a very, very busy day in the distillery, so I would skulk off school and go in and sweep the floors and get some money from the guys and all that sort of stuff and that was probably my most evocative aromatic adventure because you had green malt coming off the floor you had human sweat from the men and they smoked pipes and they would have a two or three drams during this operation which lasted two hours so you had this fantastic olfactory orgasm of human sweat peach smoke, green malt and whiskey. It sounds already uh, like a, a Laphroaig. <laughs> no, it's much better than Laphroaig. So sometimes I'd go home and my mum would say, she would smell me. She said, did you go to school today? I said, yeah, yeah, it was good. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So I, I've been going about the distillery since I was like 12 years old. I fell in love with distilling and I started up a more in 1963. And it had always been my ambition to be a cooper. I loved going into the cooperage at Bomore, the wood chips and the smell and all the love, the, the wood burning and all that. And so I got I got a job uh, and I was very, very lucky to get an apprenticeship as a cooper, uh, which is a very much a closed shop. You had to have three coopers for one apprentice. Normally it's one tradesman, one apprentice. So I got a special disposition from the Cooper's Union because it was a remote distillery. So I served my time, uh, my apprenticeship under Scotland's number one cooper. He was the longest serving cooper in Scotland. His name was David Bell. I learned a lot from him. So I was very, very fortunate. And then he retired and I took over the running of the warehouses at Beaumont and checking the cast for leaks and getting the cast filled and loading ships. And these days we didn't have roll-on, roll-off ferries. It was puffers, which were the old coal burning steam vessels that went around the coast, very famous. We used to get uh, maybe 500 casts ready to go on a ship going to Glasgow, and so one job was there, sometimes working in the ship as well. As they dropped the cast down into the ship, sometimes the heads would shift and they would start leaking, and sometimes it was done intentionally by the guys in the ship, these <laughs> tough guys, so they could get a wee dram. <laughs> so they'd fill their bottles, and then they shout, Cooper, Cooper, by this time the bottles were filled. And that was the start of a chaotic day because the bars swing in, those drunken men. So it was like carry on drinking. It was a carry on movie or carry on dramming. You could have made a, a movie. Yeah. I got the invitation to go and train as a blender in Glasgow. So I went and I trained for two years in a very smart part of Glasgow called Brigton, which is probably the most dangerous part of Glasgow. Everybody has scars on their faces, you know what I mean? So I trained there for two years in blending, just using my nose and a palate all the time, every day. Truckloads coming in from Speyside, from the north, from the west, from the east. And they were coming in with 80, 90 bars on them and check every one and say, first class, first class, second class, second class, third. So you're evaluating at high speed. And then there's the creative side of it. What whiskies go with other whiskies, you know? There's a Klein leash, does it go with a Tormor and all that sort of stuff. So my, my teacher was very good. So I learned how to segregate the different whiskies into different divisions. And it depended if the spirit had been lying in a cask that had been filled two or three times. Because each time you fill it, the effect of the wood deteriorates or it decreases. So you're looking for a good colour, you're looking for a clean nose on it, you know, looking for a bit of vitality in the spirit. And so it's all very high speed because you had to get the blending done because... That whiskey 
or indeed vatted malt. A lot of vatted malt was exported to Japan and, and all these places, and they would mix it with their own whiskey. So the company would get paid every time a, a, a container load of whiskey or a tanker load of whiskey went to Felix Stowe, went in a ship. As soon as it hit the ship, going to Osaka, Yokohama, or Kobe, these sort of places, the company was paid. So it was very high speed, uh, and I learned very quickly uh, how to evaluate whiskey. So um, I really enjoyed the blending side of it, and I became quite creative, you know, designing my own blends and all that sort of stuff. Under what bottling? Uh, we're doing uh, working for Morrison Bumore Distillers, and they had multiple blends going out to South Africa and going to Japan, as I said, and going to several countries. And they were taken out there and bottled in these countries and sold under various names like Highland King and sort of pseudo names, you know what I yeah. mean? And then I got a call to go back to take over Bumore Distillery as manager. And that was like, wow. And I started there when I was a kid, you know. And to go back as a manager, I uh, was like, I don't believe it. I went back there and I was 28 years of age. Very uh, young. Yeah, I took over Bumore Distillery and that was like a dream come true. It was owned by the Morrison family and the, the two Morrison brothers and their dad. They spent a lot of money in it and did a great job of bringing it back. It was in a bit of a state and I was actually there when Suntory bought the company from the Morrison brothers and that was an amazing day because my chairman phoned me up and he said Jim we've got a VIP party coming in and we're coming in with four helicopters I said yeah no problem he said uh, it's very very much hush hush I can't tell you who they are I said that's okay I'll find out when they come off the helicopter you know? <laughs> and he said where could you land the helicopters and I said well yes sports field up at the school and um, so up and up and saw the headmistress. I said, could we drop four helicopters here? She said, yeah, it'd be great for the kids. All so the kids exciting, yeah. Know, my two daughters <laughs> were there, yeah. <laughs> and so I said to my chairman, who are they? He said, I can't tell you. He said, Jim, this is top secret. The four helicopters came in. It was like Vietnam. And the first one I went up to meet my chairman, he came off, he said, Jim, he said, today we are selling... Bowmore Distillery, Auchentoshan Distillery and Glengarriar Distillery, Prasta Blending Plants in Glasgow. We are selling them to a company called Santori. And in the next helicopter is the president of Santori and his wife. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a big deal. Because there was still a, a, a mistrust of Japanese at that time. There was still a lingering from the war and that. a lot of people had fought in the wars and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the Japanese come in, it'll be the end of the industry. In actual fact, that wasn't the case. So I went forward to the next helicopter and there was uh, Shintori. Fantastic man, beautiful wife, great entourage, spoke perfect, perfect English. And uh, that was an icebreaker for Scotland. People talk about the great old whiskies. Well, they were great, yeah. But the whiskies being made today are probably actually better because the quality of the cask now is better than it was before. There's more bars coming in from America, you know, because the, the bourbon industry is booming. So they've got surplus bars in America. They can only use a cask one time. That's the law in the States. You can't refill a cask. As soon as you've filled it once, you must then sell it. And that protects the forestry industry in the Ozark Mountains, and it also protects the cooperage business. So we're very much unionised in the States. Use the barrel once and get rid, which means you have to buy more barrels. So the quality of casks coming into Scotland just now out of the States is absolutely sensational. Sherry casks are gone, more or less, because nobody, as you know, if I asked you, when did you last buy a bottle of sherry? Be honest. <laughs> I know. My mother was a sherry drinker and that was yeah. probably the, the last time. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sherry casts are hard to come by, but the bourbon casts are there and more and more people are now turning to wine casks, which is good. And Brucladi was the first company, myself, uh, well, it was Mark Rainey and Simon, they were the wine experts, and they started to 
introduce Chateau Yquem and all these great first growths from France and that changed the whole industry because people saw the results and tasted the results you know rather than just the bourbon all the time we can't get sherry some of the flavours that were coming from these great wine casks were absolutely extraordinary ah just phenomenal and now wine casks are commonly used for um, maturing whisky so there's a whole rainbow of aromas out there that were never found in whisky before. What about the idea of finishing in different casks that everybody does now as well? Brooklady, we were one of the biggest innovators in that business. We brought in casks from all over the place. We were bringing the most amazing casks like Sauterne wine casks and that had never been tried before. You'd think, I wonder how a heavy peated Octomole would do in a Sauterne cask. No, that won't work. Well, that's your fact, it does. Opposites attract. You've got the heavy mm-hmm. peat, you've got the beast, and then you've got a beautiful satan. So it's beauty mm. and the beast. It's just a pure love affair. It's like, oh my god, this is brilliant. You know what I mean? So yeah, Brachlari was very much at the forefront of this evolution of finishing. So you went from being manager of Beaumont to Brachlari. Uh, yeah, I'd I'd been in love with Brachlari for a long time. It was this kind of love affair. I used to fix the cast for them when I was a young kid, and and when Brooklady closed, it was bought by the company that owned Jim Beam, and need I say more, and they made promises to the people of the village and the people of Ireland that you're in safe hands now. In actual fact, three years later, they closed the distillery. Everybody was laid off, made redundant. The school died, the village died, everything died. It was tragic, and it lay there for about seven years, I think, with nothing happening, just ghosts walking the floor. As I used to fix their cast for them as a young cooper, I got to know that distillery intimately when I would come over to fix the casks. I would chat to the guys and mash them still, and I just loved the whole thing. It was like, oh God, going back in time, it was like Charles Dickens distillery. And when I was a boss at Bomore, I used to look across the water at Brooklady, and I remember saying to David Broom on one occasion, someday I'm going to reopen that distillery. One of the most beautiful spirits in Scotland. It's the Cinderella of Ireland. It's lying, dying there, you know. However, little did I think that that day would come. But come it did. And I got a phone call from Sir John McTaggart, who was our chairman at Brickladdy, and he said, Hi, Jim. He said, it's Sir John here. Myself and some friends are thinking of buying in Brickladdy. Would you be interested in taking over the distillery and get it running again? I said, yeah. He said, do you not want to think about it? I said, I've been thinking about it for years. <laughs> it's a dream come true. And I handed in my notice to Bomoa, came across the loch to Brookladdy, and the scene that met me there was just heartbreaking. I hadn't seen the distillery since I used to fix the cars. It, there was holes in the roofs, there was windows broken, there was two men and a dog working there, looking after the stocks. Just terrible. It was a disaster. However, if we swept the floor, that was an improvement. So uh, I started uh, inquiring for guys to come and work for me, and all the people came down, and we had a team put together. The most important guy was the guy who used to be the former manager, Duncan McGilvery. He was a phenomenal engineer. He knew that he studied the inside out, and some of the other guys who had worked there, they came back. It was like they came out the hills. They were going home. This is a spiritual home, Brookladdy, because you get very attached to your distillery. It's like a football team, you know what I mean? This is our distillery. In fact, all the islanders were so happy to see Brookladdy coming back. It was brilliant. I remember when we took the first spirit off the still, it was like, ah, oh, Jesus, this is so good, you know? Because the team I had with me were experienced. They had made Brookladdy before. I was quite annoyed all these people that said that Brookladdy was not a true isla because it was not heavy peated. So the first thing I did after getting Brookladdy going, I made Port Charlotte heavy peated. That shut them up. But being a kind of sadistic kind of guy, I thought, shit, I'm going to take this to the limit. How much smoke can you get into whiskey? So I made a product called Octomore, which is heaviest peated malt in existence, you know. If you think of a Lafroy and Lagavulin, they're about 50 ppm smoke, uh, peat flavour. Octomore was up at 168. We just took it to a whole new level. The whiskey lovers got behind us. It was like a, a renaissance. 
and our location in the west coast with the salt and marine influence is really really important maturing the casks in the island and Brooklady mature every cask in the island which is really important because it absorbs that salty uh, atmosphere so from way back um 2001 it was myself two men and a dog named boo <laughs> and now there's 118 people working there That's the school amazing. is operational the doctor's surgery is working the stores are doing well young people are not leaving the island they're getting married and having their children here that's how important it is not just about making profit it's about the community and the people within that community and the passion they have you know it's just a pride it's just it's tangible it's it's interesting you say that and your analogy to the the, the football team idea because I've never been to Isla before this particular trip and I hadn't actually appreciated that every single distillery is named after the little village. Yeah. And so people are so connected to mm. their distillery. It is what's keeping the village yeah. alive. Absolutely. Without the distillery, there'd be no village. But I also would like to say that you will never ever hear an Isla man speak ill of another Isla distillery or indeed any distillery. As Scots don't make bad whisky, whether it's the Highlands, the Lowlands, the Orkneys or Isla, Speyside, we don't make bad whisky. It's the unwritten law. If you work in this business, you never, ever criticise another distiller. When you were mm. working at Brewer did you ever have any um, disasters, maybe health and safety ones? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> Yes, I had one or two disasters. My most haunting disaster was, I was not long at Brooklady, probably about two months, and we started to take visitors in. And it was a beautiful summer's day, and the loch was just flat calm, the sun was rising over Bomore, and I was so enthusiastic about it. I was in the shop, and there was this couple in there, and uh, I said, Welcome to the story, it's your first time in Isla. I said, come and see the, the sunrise. So I took them upstairs into the old barley loft, which hadn't been used for decades. It was just a, a shambles of a place, but there's a window there where you could see right across the loft. And so I took them up and said, come and see the view. This is just incredible. So I took them up and stood them at the window. And the woman who was fairly well made, she disappeared through the floor <laughs> into the warehouse below but she got stuck by her arms <laughs> so there's this poor woman and she's halfway to heaven and halfway to hell and the guys are working down the there and looking up and all they can see is this pair of legs dangling and it's probably the best day they had in the warehouse <laughs> uh, and in the top half there's me and the husband trying to pull them up uh, we got her down and eventually she was taken away to Glasgow to a hospital and she was all right. She had a bit of a few bruises and a bum, but nothing too serious. But yeah, they sued her successfully and it was the closest I ever came to losing my job. You know, I mean, I'm supposed to be responsible for health and safety, but it was such a lovely day and I didn't know the floor was rotten and she disappeared. I still get nightmares about it, yeah. I bet, but at least it makes a funny story. <laughs> oh, there's thousands of funny stories. When you're working on alcohol, there's thousands of funny stories. You could, oh man, you could write volumes about it. And would you write volumes? Do you have, has anybody asked you to write ah, a, a book? Ton, yeah, quite a few people. There's tons of stories because we all swap stories. I mean, there's great storytellers. Not so much now because it's pretty much computerised and there's not so many characters because of health and safety and there's no drums given anymore. But going back maybe 20 years and before, I mean, people had reputations that were incredible for drinking 10 drams or drinking a bucket of wash and all that sort of stuff or how they could steal whiskey from the cast. They were quite uh, and creative and inventive in the way of getting whiskey out the casks. For an island that's not renowned, for its sunshine and the eating of salads. I think there was more Heinz salad cream sold in Isla than anywhere else in the United Kingdom, indeed the world. Um. What Heinz didn't know was in the old Heinz glass bottle, it would fit through the bunghole of any cask. 
That was perfect. <laughs> so the poor wife would be buying the salad cream. The husband mm. would be putting it on everything just to get the empty bottle. So you get the empty Heinz bottle yeah. to tie string round the neck and a knot, carry one in each side of your pants and you go in, drop it in and up came. Are you having a dram, Jim? No, no, I'm just having some salad cream. <laughs> <laughs> the craziest one I ever saw, and I was part of it myself, it was five o'clock at Bowmore Warehouses and we were getting cars taken away to Port Ellen to go on board a puffer and the trucks would be running back and forward from Bowmore to Port Ellen, <clears throat> whiskey that way, coal this way. And then when the puffer was empty, all the cars would go on board, be shipped to the Clyde side and sent off to the various blending plants. It was just five o'clock. I was in charge of the warehouses at Bowmore and... Um, it was a Friday night and everybody had filled their own salad cream bottle, you know, and that was then for the weekend. They weren't stealing much, it was just for the weekend, you know. And the customs man were kind of, they liked a dram as well, you know, I mean, I think they were getting their share as well, so let's keep mm. it on an even playing field. And anyway, this gentleman called Angus, who was one of the lorry drivers, he was a local hero because he was a character. And he came rushing into the warehouse at five o'clock when the customs security man is about to lock the door and we are round the back putting away some bowels. And he comes rushing in and he says, has anybody got an empty bottle? I don't have a bottle. Has anybody here can help me? Do you have an empty bottle? No, no, none at all. Oh, for God's sake, he said, what am I going to do all weekend without a dram? <laughs> I don't know, we can't help you, mate. It's too bad. And I noticed he was wearing Wellingtons. And I said, in fun, tell you what, Angus, how about I fill you Wellington? And if you can get past the customs man at the door, you have a good tram for the weekend. In fun, I said this. Next minute, he rolls up his trousers and he's got on the Wellingtons. So, rubber tube goes into the barrel, sucking the rubber. Fill up a size 9 Wellington, it holds about a bottle and a half approximately, I think, looking at it. And he puts his trousers over the Wellingtons. Now he's got to get past the customs man at the door. Fortunately, he's a guy with a limp. He goes walking down the passageway, dragging his leg, because if the whiskey moves too much, there'll be a trail like a snail behind him, this trail of alcohol. So as he approaches the exit door of the warehouse, he's dragging his leg. And the customs man picks up on it and he said, Angus, you seem to have been quite a bit of pain with your leg. Angus was a great actor. He said, oh, shrapnel. <laughs> shrapnel from the war. Now, Angus had never been to war. And sometimes the shrapnel, it just rubs against the hip bones, sir. Terrible pain. And we were saying, Jesus, don't stop. Keep going. Get out. Just move. And the customs man, very kind, said, would a little whiskey help your leg, Mr. McEachney? <laughs> well, I'll have to think about it, sir. I'm on tablets from the doctor. So the customs man says, right, here you are. And he poured him a large glass of whiskey. And Angus stands there like that, drinking the whiskey. And he's looking up at us. <laughs> <laughs> he drinks the whiskey, puts the glass down. Walks out the door, dragging his leg. Not a drop of whiskey could be seen. <laughs> now that's what you call a hero. Yeah, that's definitely. a local hero, and he was a local hero. God knows what the whiskey tasted. Well, like. that's it. At least he had the good dram beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, there was many, many ways of stealing whiskey, but that was the most creative, innovative way. Life is a book, and it's full of chapters. Claddy chapter for me is over. I now have my own company, I've got some cask which I sell uh, under my own name, the Cask Whisperer. So this is another chapter, you know. I've met some amazing people, not only here in Isla, but around the world. I remember when I made the gin at Brookladdy, the first time I made the botanist gin. I'd always thought we had, we had virtually no funds at all, so it was a distillery that was closing down at Dumbarton. So we bought a whole lot of second-hand equipment and there was this old pot still. It was a really, really strange shape. It was called a Loman still, and so we brought it back. However, on one of my trips, flying internally in America, I had the pleasure of sitting beside a coloured gentleman, um, and he'd been in the military all his life, and he had served in Vietnam, and he, was, he said, I was the guy who launched the first bomber ever in the American military with an all-Negro crew. 
he said that aircraft was called Ugly Betty. Ugly Betty was an actress called Betty Grable. That aircraft was stationed where I was stationed in Vietnam. And my job was to drop the flag. I was the last guy the pilots saw before they took off into the night sky on the bombing missions. And many never came back. He would say, guys, get on your knees and pray for Betty. Betty flies tonight. And he said something significantly to me. He said, you know, Jim, he said, that aircraft became a symbol of hope and pride for the black Americans in Vietnam. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. When I started making the gin the first time, I knew if I got it wrong, I was looking for a job. I was gone, I was history. We had virtually no money. I'd never seen this still before in action. So I got all my botanicals in, loaded up the still, the stillman put the steam on. I went to an old sink in, in the fermentation room and I was washing my face to clear my head. And I thought, shit, if we can pull this off, this will become a symbol of hope for the people of Brooklady. It was the same phrase. She became a symbol of hope for the black Americans. And so into the night sky with the still and out came the botanist chin. It was really very, very strange how the words of that man came back to me. Resonated with you completely. Mm. Yeah. And so, what a gin you came up with. Yeah, it seems to be appreciated everywhere, yeah. I can remember the first drips coming into the spirit safe. And that becomes a little silver stream. I remember putting the glass under it and nosing it. Drinking that. Thank you. Prochladi is safe, you know. We're all right. Ugly Betty became a symbol of hope for Prochladi. So it's not just about rock and roll. It's about emotional stuff, you know. It's about people. It's about the whole thing. I mean, there's so much marketing bullshit out there. But deep down, it's all down to the guys at the distillery and their passion and their skills as distillers and all that. It's a story of people's lives and they're intertwined. Yeah. And if the passion is there, the product is good. I think if the passion is there and you're able to express that passion, you know, that's what I like about the older distillers. They're not computerised. Brooklady's still working away there, not a computer on, on site. Remy have done a great job. They've acknowledged they bought a distillery and it was producing a great whiskey. So why the hell do you want to change it? So it's been a, an interesting life. There's so many facets and so many characters and so many ups and so many downs. But I have to say, in my lifetime, I'm now 71 years old and I left school at 15, so you can work that one out. It's been in this business 56 years. And, and you're still in it as the cast yeah, whisperer, yeah. so you're still so still, um, still as enthusiastic and as passionate today as I was on the 1st day of August in 1963. And watching this island now the way it is today, it's it's never been better off. There's more opportunities here. People have decent cars and they can have a decent holiday. So living on this island is not a hardship. It's actually a pleasure and a privilege to live on island, particularly because of the wealth we have here, uh, thanks to whiskey. Well, we've just had a snippet of that over the last few days, and I would have to say I'd agree with you. And um, it's been a pleasure to be here on the island, and it has been a complete pleasure to meet you. Yeah, well, likewise, you're the link between the individual and the masses. Well, thank you for sharing. You'll be getting loads more visitors over here. You can feel the buzz. You, and I'm looking you get forward. that? I do.